Hey everyone, it's Tom Hoare. Welcome back for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast. We've got a really interesting conversation for you today between Akash Shah, BNY Mellon's Chief Growth Officer, and Christopher Cox. Chris was formerly Chief Editor of Harper's Magazine and also Executive Editor of GQ, two of the most recognized publications on newsstands anywhere. And he's the author of a new book, The Deadline Effect. Having worked as a journalist and editor over the course of his career, Chris is well acquainted with deadlines, both having to meet them and also enforce them. And Chris and Akash talk about how time pressure can actually help harness the best creative impulses and lead to better outcomes and higher level performance. And they talk about something that's known as the planning fallacy, which I think many of you might find relatable uh, in your personal and professional lives. And they also talk about how different generations, particularly younger generations, respond and react to deadlines differently. There's some really interesting findings that you'll hear in this podcast on that topic. To write this book, Chris embedded himself into several very different organizations and teams to evaluate how they handled high stakes events under time duress. And he takes us behind the scenes from working at a Best Buy just before Black Friday and a variety of other teams and organizations to teach you a little bit about deadlines, time, and pressure. And so as we're all thinking about the future of work that's emerging before our eyes, productivity and efficiency are gonna be key priorities and topics of conversation for teams, for individuals, for companies. And I think today's conversation is timely and interesting in that context. And we hope you'll come away from it, maybe even feeling a little bit more motivated and ready for that next deadline. So enjoy, please give us your feedback, listen, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you at the next episode. Thanks. Well, we're joined today uh, with Christopher Cox. Uh, Chris, you're the author of The Deadline Effect, uh, among uh, many things. And this is the latest in our perspective series here at BNY Mellon. Chris, a lot about your book is how human beings react to time and the pressures of time. You're both an editor and an author, so someone who imposes deadlines and has been subjected to deadlines. What have you learned from this book and just your personal way that you approach time and deadlines specifically? Yeah, the, the book started uh, with my experience as an editor, uh, which is imposing deadlines on people mainly. Uh, and one of the central questions that got me interested in the topic of deadlines and time management um, was just watching how the magazines that I worked at, my, I, I most recently worked at GQ magazine, uh, and before that was the chief editor of Harper's Magazine. And those are two very different places. Like one is a small staff, one is a huge staff, um, but they both, you know, despite all the foibles of the individual organizations and the individuals that make them up, were extremely good at meeting deadlines. Um, you know, Harper's was founded in the 1850s, never missed an issue, uh, month after month after month. Uh, GQ never misses an issue. Uh, even though you know, it has different organizational worries, you know, it's part of a big corporation. Uh, Harper's is an independent magazine. And so I started thinking, okay, what is it about these organizations that makes them particularly good at meeting deadlines, um, at getting things done on time? And that sort of led me on this whole journey where I left the magazine world and went and embedded in nine different organizations uh, from aerospace to a small family farm and sort of everything in between to see uh, what these places did to, to get things done. And Chris, I mean, you really embedded yourself in some of these organizations. You went from profiling one of the most famous restaurateurs in the world and the opening of his most recent restaurant to literally being uh, a member of the staff at a Best Buy. Yeah. Uh, maybe just talk about the Best Buy experience a little bit. Right, so um, 
I wanted to see what Best Buy did in order to get ready for Black Friday, which is you know, their biggest sales day of the year, um, and how they met that deadline, how they prepared for it. I ended up joining the staff to sort of get the real inside look at, uh, at how they pulled it off. And uh, one of the things I talk about over and over in the book, first, is just the pure value of having a deadline to orient your, your mm-hmm. activity around. And then second, how to build different enforcement mechanisms into a deadline. Um, and so for the restaurateur, Jean-Georges uh, Van Gerichten, he had uh, all sorts of interim deadlines that he set up uh, where he'd be judged on his food on before opening. Um, with Best Buy, uh, one of the strategies they used most effectively was um, increasing interdependence mm-hmm. in, in the organization. So on a regular sales day, not on Black Friday, um, the way the Best Buy works is what um, some sociologists call and, and management experts call pooled interdependence, mm-hmm. where basically every salesman is working for him or herself and their sales together are pooled to, to produce revenue in that store. Um, but they change that on Black Friday to, um, to make the staff more dependent on each other, more interdependent. Uh, and the way they do that is they no longer track individual sales. Um, each employee is expected to start a sale and then hand it off to someone else, and then they hand it off to someone else mm-hmm. to you know, go to the register or whatever, and they hand it off to someone else to get the person out the door. And they have to do that in order to handle the volume, the sheer number of people that are going to be coming through Best Buy that day. Um, so the way they, they in a way, the, the way that De- Best Buy meets that particular deadline of Black Friday is by totally changing the way they do business for, for that one day. Um, and it's effective. Like they, they, unlike some of the horror stories you hear out there about Black Friday, Best Buy has never had any sort of incident like that. Right. Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, Chris, so much of the science you also talk about, um, management theory, but also pure sort of uh, sociological and other mm-hmm. Uh, studies. Talk about how we think about deadlines is re- a lot rooted in how we are naturally optimistic beings. And how, like, just talk about a little bit that sense of optimism around deadlines and how we tend to overshoot very often. Why does that happen? Like, what, what's, what's going on with us? Well, you said it. I mean, it's, it's optimism that, that um, is the culprit there. Uh, there's a famous um, psychological problem called the planning fallacy uh, and it basically is our tendency to underestimate how long something is going to take, how long a project is going to take, um, and then if it has a cost attached to it, how much it's going to cost. Um, and in the book I cite a few different sort of case studies about that and some psychological experiments. Uh, the most famous real world, ex- world example that I bring up is the Sydney Opera House, mm-hmm. um, which is a beautiful building, uh, but the original um, time budget for that project was six years, uh, and I believe it took 13 years, uh, and the original budget was seven million Australian dollars, and it took 102 <laughs> Australian, a million Australian dollars, so they, they totally got it wrong. Uh, and now, maybe we don't care about that, but it, at the time, people were tearing their hair out. Um, and so, how do you, how do you counteract that, that optimism bias? How do you avoid the planning fallacy? Uh, there's an interesting study that I read and it asked uh, students who were, I think, completing their, um, their dissertations, the question was, in the worst case scenario, 
when are you going to turn this in? Not when do you think you're most likely to turn it in, or not if you, you know, if everything went really well, mm -hmm. when are you going to turn it in? No, when, if everything was, went absolutely wrong, when do you think you'll turn this in? And even when primed in, in that manner, they still only 50% got it right. 50% right. met, met that deadline. Uh, the other half you know, went past the worst case scenario. And there was a follow-up experiment uh, by the same sort of researchers that, that, that asked that question, uh, where they primed students uh, with a question. It's, okay, think about um, the last time you did a project that was similar to this. Mm -hmm. And how long did that take? And merely by priming people with that question, by having them just pause and reflect on when they had a project that was similar and tell themselves deliberately, okay, that took nine months last time I did it. It, it helped eliminate the planning fallacy. It almost completely eliminated it, actually. And people were very accurate in their predictions once they were given that sort of, that deliberate process to go through of, I have to remember the last time I did something like this, and that's going to tell me how long this, this new project is going to take. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things uh, in that example was how when students had a choice of their deadline and chose the last possible date where things were due, they still missed that. And folks who actually set up interim deadlines to submit multiple papers around those different dates actually were far more likely to get all three done in the, in the right way or yeah, on time. Exactly. Interim uh, deadlines are incredibly effective. And, and in the book, I talk about an experiment where interim deadlines were effective whether they were externally imposed, you know, in the case of those students, by a professor, or whether you know, they're self-imposed. Um, and that's, that's good news for those of us who don't always have the option of relying on someone else telling us, oh, this has to be done by this date. Yeah, I, one of my questions is, you know, in some ways, nudge theory, you know, the people who wear those Apple watches with <laughs> notifications. I mean, we do live in a world now where a sort of technocratic vision of constantly being pushed to do something that works against these inherent biases uh, that we have uh, can happen, could happen. And many large corporations actually manage their staff that way. Mm -hmm. There's something that feels a bit unnatural about that. Um, I don't know. What's your take on it? it? It clearly works, though. Yeah, no, I think, you know, whatever the method is you choose to sort of keep yourself on target and to your deadlines, I'm not going to object to it. But I will say that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be high tech at all. Right. Um, I mean, in the example of those uh, students sort of overcoming the planning fallacy, there was no app, there was no Apple Watch. Right. It was just merely being prompted with a question, like ask yourself this question. And if you go through the effort of, of doing that and answering that question, then you're much better at planning. So it just it, it requires you to be deliberate, uh, but you can do that entirely internally. Have you found some sort of generational change when it comes to time management? And especially, you know, you've been an editor at multiple institutions, now also the Times, and, you know, you've probably seen through at least half a generation of staff. Um, like, do people of different ages perceive deadlines in a different way? Have you noticed something there? Or is it just, we're all human? I mean, that's a good question. I, I feel like... Um my experience as an editor, you deal with writers of all sorts. Right. Um, some people are extremely good at meeting deadlines and sort of never fail to file copy on the day that you tell them to. Others, you know, will disappear and not give you anything for weeks after it was supposed to be due. Um, I don't know if I saw a generational divide 
along those lines. What I did see in the staff um, at Harper's and at GQ um, was, this is painting very broad strokes, sure. but the, the younger generations seem to just be a little more thoughtful in general about balancing their time. Mm -hmm. Like they want their work time to be productive and they want their free time to be free. Um, and I feel like uh, with some of the older staff members, maybe even in, including myself to some extent, like the, the, those divisions weren't as concrete. We were more comfortable with letting things bleed into you know, free time and work time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's, I mean, if that is a change that's happening with the millennial generation and, and the ones that are following, it's a good change. I mean, in the book, I, I cite one experiment that Microsoft did with a four-day work week, and they found that uh, productivity increased by 40% right. when, they, when they restricted the work week to just four days. Like, there, there, are, there are promising developments here that I think we're going to see more and more people experiment with that kind of stuff, uh, and productivity doesn't have to suffer. And Chris, maybe as a, just a closing thought, you know, we're living in a, it's cliche to say this, but an increasingly complex world, but particularly in the time and moment we're in, a lot of companies, a lot of organizations are contemplating bringing their colleagues back into the office, just like we are. Mm -hmm. And I guess a lot of it is on this premise of productivity and where are people most productive? You kind of already spoke about this, but just can you maybe partake some lessons from this on how people should perceive um, productivity in the age of hybrid work and remote work and all mm -hmm. those concepts? Yeah, I mean, so the, the thing that I talk about a lot in the book um, is how to create enforcement mechanisms right. for your deadlines. And there's nothing about remote work versus in-person work that would exclude that from, from being an option. So. Um, I think that we already know how to, to make enforcement mechanisms work for deadlines in person because we've done it for you know, generations, years and years. Um, the question is if we're going to continue having remote work be a part of the work week, even if it's you know, people coming in for a few days, how, we need to be a, a probably a bit more deliberate than we have at making sure that um, we have ways to keep people thinking about productivity, thinking about deadlines when they are sort of not in the same physical space with other people. Like at the, the magazines where I worked, a lot of times the reason that I was able to sort of get my writers to give me a piece on time was because there was literally a person standing, like knocking on my office door <laughs> right. saying, I'm from the art department, I have to see this right. so I can you know, photograph it or whatever. Um, and that same kind of direct uh, in your face reminder is, is harder to to engineer in a remote environment, but obviously it's possible. We just have to sort of get better at it. Maybe Chris, as a final thing, uh, you you traveled a lot um, both through experiences and places for this book. Do you have a particular anecdote or moment that's just uh, remains extra special for you? Well, I was just thinking today, uh, maybe because it's you know, the middle of the summer and uh, it's been a little hot recently, uh, of the opposite experience was I went to Telluride Ski Mountain and um, watched them prepare that whole mountain for opening day. And as part of that, I sort of was an honorary member of the snowmaking team, mm -hmm. which involved 
riding a snowmobile all over the mountain in the freezing cold. And because you're making snow, you know, you're, you're literally shooting freezing water into the air. And so it's the coldest, most miserable job I did maybe for the entire book. Um, and that definitely stands out as a, as a moment where people, you know, up against a deadline were sort of giving their all mentally and physically to get things done. And I mean, if you read the book, you'll see like they, they opened up on time and people were skiing uh, on opening day. So it worked. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you for spending this time with us. Chris Cox, the author of The Deadline Effect. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Akash. Hey, everyone. Tom here again. Thanks again for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, uh, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, if you're willing, leave a review or a rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and bnymelon.com. Thanks again for joining. We'll see you on the next episode.